It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and we're recording today on Thursday, May 14th, 2020. And today I want to talk about family and parenting and home and Shabbat and Judaism and all of those things as they live together, all of which are changing and evolving for, for all of us as people and as communities uh, throughout this crisis. And I'm joined by two fantastic people who I just discovered don't know each other, but I'm, I'm happy to know that now they now will. Uh, Lisa Klein is the executive director of One Table. And Alyssa Strauss is joining us from the West Coast, writes about family, parenting, the politics of parenting for CNN and a whole bunch of other publications. So I'm excited to be with both of you here. Before we jump in, I'd like to ask this of all of our guests at the beginning of the show. Something great that you cooked, ate, watched, or read in the past couple of weeks that you could recommend to our listeners. Uh, Alyssa, let me start with you. Oh, I think the, the simplest of simple things is that I was making schnitzel, which is delicious, and then I just threw in potatoes, and it's just such a moment of communion when you fry a potato and you put salt on it and dip it in ketchup, and everyone knows this, but sometimes you need to relive it and rediscover it. So that was certainly a culinary highlight. Great. Fried potatoes. Got it. Alicia? Yeah. Uh, um, I'm just going to go with uh, Schitt's Creek, uh, re-watching Schitt's Creek now with my 13-year-old and seeing her just find such delight in Catherine O'Hara and Dan Levy and the rest of the cast. And her delight brings me delight. And um, that's it. I just, I can't recommend it more. <laughs> Everyone should watch it all the time. Fantastic. So on Amen. My, yeah. most recent, the best thing I made yesterday was just five minute white bean paste that went into a flatbread and it was so good. You could, mm. eat, you could have eaten it off a shoe. So anyway, let's, um, let's jump into our, our topic here. And, uh, Elise, I want to start with you. You know, your work, your work is around Shabbat and your work is about family and about bringing people together. In some ways, I, I would think that a crisis like this, which is forcing everybody to be at home, is like a boon for an industry that's trying to get people to, to sit around tables and, and talk. So tell us a little bit about how your work has been affected. And I'm also just, I want to kind of put you on the spot and ask you how your family Shabbat is going. Yeah. Because this is not just professional, but personal. Yeah. I'm, I presume no one is going to walk in here during the next half an hour, but just in case my youngest Nomi is in Jewish day school, two bedrooms down. Um, so I'll just say for, for me, for right now, for my own personal Shabbat, just first very quickly, there is a, a moment of complete relief and joy once we realize that it is in fact Friday and that that is in fact time to shut down and also a tremendous loss. Um, up until March 12th, I was having, 13th, I was having Shabbat with my parents who are in their 80s every single Shabbat. They live only four blocks away and we haven't celebrated Shabbat with them since then. Um, we have eaten my mother's challah, which does bring joy and feel connection. Mine really, really pales, even though I have 
I should be really good at it, um, but it's just not the same. So I, it's, it's a real moment of com- tremendous sweetness and tremendous loss um, folded into one. So we, we bring them on for blessings so they can hear my daughter give kiddush, make kiddush, and, and hear my father sing his tailored version of Eshet Chayel to my mom, which my daughters can chant along with him. And that those moments make us feel connected. It's a, it's a real constant flow of joy and loss mixed in with almost every breath. In terms of one table, for those um, of your listeners who might not know, I would just sort of compare it to like Airbnb for Shabbat dinner, meaning it's a platform where we have thousands of guests, all of whom are in their 20s and 30s, who are hosting their peers for Shabbat dinners. Very interesting to see the impact of um, shelter in place on home-based ritual from this perspective. So just a quick data perspective, we were averaging about 225 dinners per week before uh, COVID, and now we're at 300 plus. So that's a significant increase on a weekly basis. However, the number of people participating is way down because most people, the average dinner size now is four. And then that is broken into two categories. I would call the sort of the shelter in place Shabbat um, or roomy Shabbat, which is the more common vernacular for our crowd, which means I'm living with my roommates or my beloved. What is it like to actually create Shabbat just for us? We have been really pushing hospitality and inviting people into your home, people you know, people you don't. And that was a big pivot to elevate time. It's like a different kind of kavana that you have to intention, you have to articulate when it's together in the same space that you have been. Um, So that's lifted like a whole new beautiful challenge. And then about 30% of the dinners are what we call virtual dinners. So it could be Yehuda at his home, maybe with a roommate, but they are specifically inviting um, a handful of other people across the country. Um, by and large, those are also intimate, the number of faces that can fit on a screen. And then we as an organization have been planting um, live Shabbat events for the vast majority of people who we know are usually inclined to be guests, not hosts. Still, even with the increase in um, weekly dinners, we still see concern, fear, resistance to actually hosting yourself, that is really our work, is just helping people feel like it's okay. You can create a beautiful space on your own. We will help you do that. And starting at this stage of life so that it becomes natural throughout your life shift. It's so interesting, Elisa. It's almost like what you're, that last pivot is that at one point, the work was about creating cultures of hospitality. And now it feels a little bit like many of us are learning what it is to actually take care of ourselves at home differently than, you know, and and those are two totally different social problems. The one of the gaps that exist between us that, that make us want to bring other people into our homes, but involves in that context, like the anxiety about performance and what does it look like and what does it feel like to break across difference. And now I think a lot of us, uh, even those of us who have, you know, have, have, have people who we live with and loved ones have to figure out how to be at home so much with the same group of people and how to make home as opposed to yeah. make hospitality. Yeah. The frame it that if it's same and you need to make it sacred as opposed to like completely different, like I, we didn't used to be have all five of us home on a Friday night. Now we're home. Now, I mean, period now on a weeknight, now we're home all together. So it's, I mean, I think that that's the purpose of the ritual, right? Is to help us elevate, figure out what day it is. And also, by bringing in ritual, actually sanctify the time. And we just published a solo Shabbat guide, which is beautiful. And it's really all about if you are fully by yourself, you may or may not use technology on Shabbat, maybe just done with technology, or it may be part of your practice. How do you still feel good and okay and connected 
when you're really setting the table for one. Um, and so that's a whole other level of feeling connected while disconnected. Melissa, let me ask you, um, I mean, I'm curious also about if you're comfortable talking about Shabbat in your own house, but I, I want to pick up just a line that I think you wrote last week where you said shelter in place has lowered the stakes and expectations of everyday life. And I, I'd love to map that uh, onto this. What does that look like and feel like if you could speak personally, but also in terms of what you're observing uh, around yeah. home and parenting life? I guess, you know, there's some level, like we have to qualify. We are, I'm a homebody, which makes me like a great person to speak to and also at the same time a terrible person to speak to right now I've always worked from home I've always worked alone um my husband also largely works from home uh and uh, and we have small children which makes us more homebound than you know families with older children or people without children but yeah in terms of lowered expectations I think for us non-Shabbat you know it's just about not being so stuck on any particular outcome or any schedule every day in terms of teaching our children and what that's going to look like. And also the same with moods with children, especially young children who metabolize this in very different ways at at all the different moments. You know, it's like there's a lot of up and down. Um, So I think it's really just kind of like if this is not working today, fine. It may work tomorrow attitude. In terms of Shabbat, you know, it's funny what you talk about. There's a certain release to not having Shabbat have to be a social event because when you host people for Shabbat, you know, I think we all know this now, like that we still talk about invisible labor, but I don't think it's invisible at all anymore. Like you shop, you meal plan, you know, you text what time, you know, you coordinate with the guests all before to make it happen. The whole thing, especially again, when you have young children, it goes by so fast, it's utter chaos. And then you're cleaning before you know it. Uh, And it's still beautiful. And we still were committed to it. But so there is there is now like a certain opening there. There is I feel like the day of rest part of Shabbat is a little we can achieve it a little more easily now that it's not a social activity, that we're able to just be in our Shabbat together. Yeah, I'll say for us, uh, we, you know, we've both been Shabbat observant our whole life continuously. What has changed for us over the years were different expectations than the ones that I grew up with around, do you have to get showered and changed for Shabbat? <laughs> right, so that kind of went away because my kids just didn't want to do, like it wasn't just, like who wants to do, I didn't want to deal with that. Um, or the expectations of like, uh, you know, going to shul as a main main part of Shabbat, certainly not Friday night. In fact, we had this very embarrassing moment a couple of years ago with one of our kids said, wait, there's shul on Friday night? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> we're living in the range of possibility. Um, but, um, but we had all of those evolutions, but it was always really, really important to us and partly because of the, the, the jobs that we work. And I cannot, I cannot even process how significant the feeling of Shabbat has become in our yeah. lives uh, in this moment, just because nobody's on Zoom and we don't use technology in our house, it's actually a stretch my own pluralism because I want to be supportive of like you, you'd have people do their own Shabbats however they see fit, but I can't imagine what it must feel like to people who don't observe Shabbat in the sense of turning off technology because it's it's just so it's so exhausting and I just I feel so liberated by it and I'm it's so it's what's weird is we're spending all this time at home. We're eating dinner together as a family every night for more times cumulatively in the past eight weeks than we did for the previous 10 years. And still, Shabbat comes, candles go on, the same dinner that we had last night, we're having around the table tonight. And something feels um, essentially and almost religiously different. That's called Kedusha. 
Oh, really? Yeah, that's what I would call it. It's just so funny what you're saying. I'm I'm a rabbi's daughter and granddaughter, congregational. Um, and I actually married a member of the clergy as well, but never in a congregational sense. And so my children also have no idea about Friday night services, which was, uh, as, you know, growing up as a Reformed family, it meant you know, Shabbat dinner was very, very set, very structured, and very quick because we had to be at shul by 7.45, you know, for services at 8 p.m. And and so that was definitely the first thing that we were like, oh, we don't have to do that anymore, ever, with my whole life, <laughs> and changed everything. And so, I mean, I really see my kids just yearning for Shabbat, right? And and they will wake up now, like, what day is it? You know, is it is it Friday yet? You know, we were We've been playing on social media with one table about a poll, like, what day is it? Is it Friday yet? Is it Friday? You know, like, because you can't tell. We we just did a, a deep dive series of focus groups with sort of a part two of a loneliness study that one table's been thinking about because we've spent so much time thinking about the epidemic of loneliness pre-COVID that was affecting young adults so intensely. And one of them <laughs> said in the focus group that it feels like six Tuesdays and a Shabbat, which is a whole lot better than seven Tuesdays. I really think that the kind of the punctuation um, and the separation, the sort of like lahav deal, like having Shabbat separate the sacred and the profane right now, just from the, you know, from Friday afternoon to Friday night, just that what does that mean and how human of a desire it is to have that distinction and separation and how much we actually need the structure to make it happen, right? Like no one is telling you it has to be Friday night. Somebody, you can make Shabbat on Tuesday, theoretically, but we don't because it's too many other decisions to make. And this is a, this is like a decision that you don't have to make. And that humility, I think that's what it is. Like, I think that humility is just a relief. It's not up to me. I, this is ready or not, here comes Shabbat. And how do I get there to greet it? And I, I just see it with my kids. I don't like to eat the same thing, cook the same thing, go dry the same way twice ever. That is my husband's 180 different. Like he really likes consistency. I like difference. And I've had to yield on Shabbat because there's a combination of like, we have to, we have to always have Shabbat potatoes. Like I can make anything else, but that, that is not changing because yeah. of how important, you know, like we only eat Shabbat potatoes on Shabbat, you know? <laughs> I like that we've, we've come full circle back to potatoes. It's interesting. You <laughs> characterize it as, um, as Kedusha, as holiness, but it, it might equally be characterized, and maybe these categories aren't that different from one another as as obligation. And that obligation at, in moments like this, where there's oftentimes very, like there's such indistinguishability between the days and the times, then the framework of obligation of, I don't have a choice. Uh, there's something coercively obligating me. And it's just, just sunset to do something totally different. It's maybe the underside of the, of the notion of holiness. I'm not saying that the things can't be connected with each other. Of course they are, right? Obligation creates yeah. frameworks yeah. for holiness, but it does for, and in my experience, it's been a little bit different. I'm curious, Alyssa, I don't remember how old your kids are, but what, you know, you, you mentioned that you have little kids at home and I'm curious what their experience of time looks like, um, especially because you're, you've talked about yourself as, as at home and being a homebody and, and, yeah. and what you've seen in terms of their experience of time. Um, I think I'll start with this, and it really speaks to like the primal urge that Eliza was getting into. Um, Shabbat, my three-year-old wakes up every single morning. Is it Shabbat, mommy? Is it Shabbat? And I'm like, no, sorry, Levi. And then he stops. And he goes, Is it Havdalah? Is it Havdalah, mommy? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Um, it's odd because like we're physically so contained, but there's this sense of like formlessness. You know, I, my shorthand for my bad days right now, psychologically, is like my puddle days, like. It just feels something incredibly amorphous and chaotic. And um, 
and just like hungry for some form. And I think that's what he longs for. And I think that's, he's, he's speaking for all of us really. Like, is it Shabbat? Is it Havdalah? Like, is there an order? Is there a sense I can make of the world right now, mommy? Because otherwise these days just spill right into each other. Let's switch from the spiritual side of this question to the political side, because home right now is is a, an extremely political. It's the place where we now work. We go to school uh, where we're going to work together with our kids. We're going to school. And so those, those categories have blurred. There's been a whole bunch of writing, uh, especially in the Times the last couple of weeks for the gendered implications of all of this. There was one Times headline that said, you know, half of men... Uh, believe that they're doing equal share of homeschooling their kids. 3% of women agree. Uh, Claire Miller had a whole piece actually also about, um, I think oh, maybe that was Claire Miller's piece. There was another piece about parents giving up and feeling a sense of giving up. Uh, I know sometimes we in our household use the term when it comes to our parenting, like this is a pass fail moment. <laughs> um, and, I, and I definitely feel like we've been in that a lot. I, I'm curious, you know, Alyssa, especially since you've written about this before, just what trends are you seeing around, around the politics of parenting, around the gender dynamics of parenting, um, what you're seeing, what you're reading, and, and what do you think of all of this is going to linger beyond this weird moment that we're in right now? I think as tends to be the case with almost everything, it's incredibly complicated and there's a lot of different things going on at once. Yes, women still do more childcare and domestic work. And that's for a lot of reasons beyond just like men are lazy doofuses and they're incompetent and want to, you know, sit in their um, man sheds or what do men have. Um, and just, you know, it, like the men also tend to have like jobs that more fully support the family and women, you know, it, it's, it's coded into us in so many different ways. That's much bigger than male laziness. Um, from ec economic reasons, cultural reasons, etc. Um, so I think, yes, a lot of this is falling on moms. I think some early studies suggest that. And also anecdotally, we're definitely hearing that. I think at the same time, when we think big picture, I mean, men today do three times as much childcare than they did in 1965. For elder care, um, men today, I think it was 30% of primary caregivers for elder care. It was 30% were men. Now it's 40%. Men are doing more caregiving than they ever have in history. It's just women are so stressed out that they need more, more now, now, now. But there has been this slow moving change to men doing more. And I think, um, well, yes, on one hand, a lot of women are feeling the burn. On the other hand... And I'd say probably the majority of the women are feeling the burn of doing too much and more than possibly their fair share. On the other hand, there are millions of healthcare workers that are women whose male partners are suddenly primary caregivers for the first time. So while we have this culture of frustration, like some, you know, some, there was one, you know, one study a group of economists did said this could actually be a Rosie the Riveter moment for men where Rosie the Riveter was women finally went to the workplace and after the war ended, it was mostly white educated women who stayed in the workplace or lower income women while the middle class, middle class generally went back to the home. Um, this could be a real moment of transition. And uh, so I think, yeah, it's one of those things, a lot of different things going on at once. And it's fascinating to see how it all plays out. I, it, I think it is though pressing maybe fast forward on that like threat of gender politics today. I wonder whether there's also a possibility that I think you used the, the phrase invisible labor earlier on. I wonder whether there's a possibility now that because people are basically pressed into close quarters with one another in a different way, 
that at least whether or not it actually changes the balance on, on who does the invisible labor, at least it makes the invisible labor visible. Stephanie and I are having this weird experience of like, we now see how each other is at work. And that's been totally interesting and weird. Um, and uh, and use, for us, useful, because now we have like a chavruta around it. Uh, we know, I know more intimately the challenges that she has in her work and she knows mine. And and there's a lot of learning around what that looks like. But I also wonder whether that happens on the, uh, on the domestic front of like you actually see what it looks like for your uh, for your partner to have to to deal with all sorts of stuff around school and life and home uh, and especially for those of us who have the privilege of usually having being able to outsource all of that work to babysitters and housekeepers and we're now splitting it ourselves there's no there's no real way to hide uh, around right. what what needs to take place in order to to make right. the household run the only thing yeah. I just want to interject and I'm thinking about the single parents among us. You know, I have members of my own team who are trying to do their work with a toddler on their lap who either do not have a partner by choice or by design or um, by availability. And the huge numbers of people in our population who are facing that. And I, you know, like it, it's, I'm so torn. I think like the recent PPP loan was pretty great for my organizations, helping me keep a lot of people employed, but it would be pretty awesome to just give it to a whole lot of people who are single parents who are trying to figure out how to actually function in the world while also caring for their child who is too young to, you know, my youngest is 11. It's a completely different scenario. She needs me, but it's in a very different way. Um, and I, I'm really struck by that. I feel like as a, as a supervisor, it's very difficult to figure out how to best support those members of my team. And then for them also to figure out how to navigate their career, if they have one still and parenting and all of this, because there isn't another person around. I think you're right to flag that. Um, I think that's a huge issue. It goes to the, also what you talked about at the beginning, Elisa, of the difference between what it what it feels like now when we're first talking about like Shabbat observance or other types of ritual observance to be doing that together with family members or roommates or whether you have to do it alone and figuring out like the broad range of empathy that we can all marshal to like, this is what's difficult about my experience and what's difficult about somebody else's experience. It's not an index of more and less. It's radically different and, and requires like a, a kind of shift uh, into that direction. And and the tragedy of all of this is that the only way we can access other people's experiences is through these media. It actually, like we're, we are effectively being compressed into our own little cocoons, into our own domestic spaces. And so the the, at a moment like this, when you actually need to be able to marshal more empathy, it's it's much more difficult than it is usually possible to do so because we have so much of a limited frame of who we can see. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and I'll just tell you, like we were just from the perspective of having strangers to Shabbat dinner, for example, just to go back, because that's what I spend so much of my time thinking about, right? That's that's not the work that we're doing right now, right? So there are, in fact, just more relationships that are not forging. It's a deepening of existing relationships, sometimes way back, right? That was the first thing that people noticed um, in quarantine is that they were reaching out to, like felt this desire to reach out to or be reached out to people who they had been close with as children, right? Or as young adults and, and long lost friends. And there is, so it's a really looking inward as opposed to looking outward. So the exposure to the other is, is severely decreased. And I think that that's going to be a big challenge opening up because of our, our, our nasty inclinations towards xenophobia to begin with. Though I would like to add that there is some potential that, I mean, that is bad, you know, but there is some potential that could, I'm not, it's not refuting that, but there is some potential for us in this moment to harness more empathy for the people we live with and to actually take like the act of care a little more seriously and 
kind of see the potential in the act of care because I feel like a lot of what we do, and again, it's not, you know, this isn't a zero sum game, like empathy for the stranger versus empathy for ourselves and our families or whoever we're intimately, you know, uh, engaged with. But I think that we haven't as a culture spent enough time thinking critically about caregiving as a philosophical experience, an ethical experience, a psychological experience. And there's a lot of opportunity to do that now when we are seeing the other that's in our house, you know, even our children. And especially now when, you know, people work more hours out of the house than they have, you know, for most of history. Um, this, I think there is some opportunity here and it doesn't make up again for everything that we're losing by any means. And I don't ever want to like overemphasize the silver lining piece of this because obviously this is tragic on so many levels. But I do think it's an opportunity for people to stop and think like, what's it like, right, to engage with not just that other, but that other that's dependent on me. And what does that do to my mind? How does it like make me reassess my assumptions on what's a good life or what's the right thing or wrong thing in a situation? Yeah, I know, Elisa, you have uh, you have some work to do today. So I'm going to just ask you one last comment, yeah. uh, which is, um, you know, since you're since you're in the business of Shabbat and helping people create uh, hospitable experiences, but also powerful domestic experiences, give us one best practice uh, in the spirit of uh, of Alyssa's uh, Alyssa's call for like uh, how we can grow and how we can learn in this moment. So um, I would say these are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, forgiveness, be gentle to yourself. I love the first comment you used from Alyssa from last week about lowering the stakes, that what you do in your own home is considered kosher. It is sacred. It is good enough. It is perfect. And at the same time, elevate, set the table, put some fresh flowers on the table, make something special that you don't have otherwise, light a candle that you wouldn't otherwise. The the rituals of light and um, blessing and over wine or something that makes you happy, having something special even once a week that just allows you to distinguish time is, um, is a gift that you can give to yourself and to the people with you. And the last thing I would say is if you are using technology to meet with, with people on Shabbat, just as like how you welcome people is important, ending is also important and it can be terribly awkward. So thinking instead about we're all going to end by raising our glasses and uh, giving a toast of gratitude, or we're all going to just, you know, express gratitude to one other person on this call or anything that you can do to actually build in a starting and ending ritual allows you to walk away from that call feeling uplifted as opposed to sort of frustrated and discouraged, which sometimes can happen with those group Zoom calls. Yeah, Alyssa, maybe I'll ask you also just one last, you, you both helped us understand the, the shifting stakes and what might be different after all of this. Uh, and I love your, I love your call for empathy. And maybe you could give us one other, one other closing on if we're in this shift of, of stakes and expectations, you don't have to think of yourself as an expert on parenting to give people some parenting advice. That's, that's, that's how I generally understand the field. I assume parenting advice is, is rooted in everybody is not doing that great at this. But um, one thing that you've seen from your research and, and from your reporting that, that might be helpful to, to parents with young children uh, as they navigate what may feel at times like a much more constrained space than they had before. I was looking for unexpected responses to the moment among children. And I posted a few things on different quarantine parenting um, Facebook groups and asked around. And I was very surprised to learn and had an overwhelming response to the fact that children are happier right now. A lot of a lot of children are not happier right now. And that's perfectly normal. I need to emphasize. But a lot of children are happier right now. And the reasons they're happier um, basically 
they have more free time, they have more independence and kind of by necessity are being forced to connect with their siblings. And I think, in, you know, for this conversation, I think the independence thing might really be something that parents can really try to like emphasize and find opportunities for their kids to be more independent. And I think that could be, that could involve executing Shabbat. You know, we can connect all the dots here. Like really bring kids into the execution of your rituals because when we're busy in normal life, we can't. It, I mean, we would all love to, you know, spend hours making challah with our toddlers and letting them pick what songs we'll sing, you know, but at least in our house, like it, it all happens pretty fast always. So I, I think that's something that kids would really give kids a lot of psychological satisfaction, opportunities for growth, actually take something off possibly like a parent's to-do list and, you know, and create little points of connection for the family. And what that is depends a lot on how old your kid is, obviously, but let them, you know, give them the keys to the kingdom as much as you can. I think with our kids, it's they're all over the map about whether they're happier or not right now. It depends on the day. It depends on the hour. Um, I know that I, as a parent, it was helpful to me to stop watching what other parents were doing because the ones that emerge to the surface are the people who are over, are kind of high performers in this arena activities for the kids. I was just like, no, my kids, uh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to figure out how to lean. And here it's not lowered expectations or higher expectations. We're going to have to lean into living a life in our space and with our family that makes us happy and makes us fulfilled. And, um, and obviously that's, that's, uh, that's been extremely complicated. You know, I I have this like wanderlust all the time. So I'm like, you know, for the last year or two, been like, Oh, we should move. Not that there's anything really wrong with our house, but we should move just because like I grew up moving houses a lot. And this has been like a period of tremendous intimacy with our house, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. It's in some ways cleaner than it's ever been because we <laughs> dealt with all these problems. Right. And, also, and also it's been a, been a period of getting to know our kids quite differently because given our travel schedules and work schedules, um, the, the amount of time we're spending together has been uh, hard and, and wonderful and powerful. So I, I think... I think you're giving us some good advice in terms of listening for what actually might be working, what might be a weird gift of this dark moment for those of us who aren't actually suffering from the virus and who are not suffering from tremendous loneliness of understanding what's actually possible within our right. home. Thanks so much for listening to our show this week and special thanks to, to my wonderful guests, Alyssa Strauss and Elisa Klein. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by So-Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show, so you can write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy. I hope you enjoy the company and presence of the people around you. And thanks so much for listening.